0: Nelson, and thanks for joining me on Create the Future, a podcast brought to you by the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. are known for being creative problem solvers and, like scientists, often have a number of strings to their bows. But I have to admit to not coming across an engineer like this one before. California-based Justina Zander is considered a bit of a technology rock star in autonomous cars often cited as one of the most powerful women in engineering. She's an expert in artificial intelligence and machine learning, has worked at Intel, Harvard University and the White House, speaks five languages, and if that wasn't enough, is also a licensed Zumba instructor. But her day job is Global Head of Verification and Validation, simulation architecture for autonomous driving at NVIDIA, one of the main companies building the underlying technologies for self-driving cars. Justina, thank you for joining me on Create the Future. You're living in America, speak fluent German, English, Polish, academic level Russian, and primary level Italian. So I wanted to start with by knowing which one of those languages do you dream in?
1: It depends what I'm doing and where I am located. So my dreams are changing depending on what is occupying my mind. Today I dreamt in English.
0: <laughs> That's so interesting. You're originally from Poland, though. That is right. But you went to, you did a lot of your schooling in, in Germany. Why Why was that?
1: I was born in Poland and when I was 21 I left to Germany. And The reason I left was because I wanted to do something meaningful impact the technology world in a meaningful way and in poland i was just a student whereas in germany when you are a student you are actually allowed and welcome to work for research institutes and i immediately took on a job in a research institute called Fraunhofer institute for telecommunication at the time it was in berlin germany <laughs>
0: And you've got two degrees. You've got one in computer science, one in electrical engineering. So was it at the Fraunhofer Institute that you studied electrical engineering?
1: So the way the studies are structured in Germany is that you do computer science and electrical engineering at the same time. There was ah. no distinguish- you You couldn't just do computer science. Actually, altogether, I have six degrees.
0: Six? Sorry, I'm <laughs> just a bit gobsmacked by
1: that. Yeah, I was a little bit of uh, education freak. You know, I did a lot of uh, degrees in parallel. So first environmental protection, then computer science and electrical engineering, and then master level and PhD level in computer science and electrical engineering. And then you know, also I did something like kind of like mini MBA in technology. Uh, at the time it was at the Singularity University at NASA Ames in California. And it was about exponential technologies or exponentially growing technologies. You must have
0: a tremendous thirst for knowledge. I just enjoy
1: it. Uh, I derive pleasure from learning new, new things and advancing.
0: And when did that start? As a child, were you one of those? A lot of engineers say they were always constantly taking things apart, you know, interested in how things work. Is, is that how you were as well as a child?
1: That's really interesting. I wasn't like this. Uh, I don't think it ever started. I, I just remember it always, it just always was like this. I remember my grandfather asking asking me about school and how do you like school in the first year of school when I was six. And I told him, you know what, I'm going to keep learning as long as I can. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess I promised something that, that I still hold on to.
0: So you're extremely academic. What is it about electrical engineering that really caught your attention? What did you like about it, that and the combination with computer science?
1: So there is a difference between doing things in abstraction and building stuff. And when I, you know, encountered electrical engineering and mechanical engineering, to me, it was like, you can finally actually build stuff and you can make things. Uh, So that was a discovery to me. And it turned out that, the way you make things, when you combine them with the high-tech technology, so with computer science, you can actually advance them a lot. You can see it in in cars, but not only, you can see it in robotics, uh, you can see it in healthcare, the way we advance. So all of a sudden you could combine multiple things and make them even better.
0: You've had a, a number of roles and positions before you joined NVIDIA, including doing startups. And working at Intel as well, which of your jobs do you think has has sort of taught you the most as as an engineer?:
1: It depends because once you go over your stages in your life, your brain is also you know is getting a new perspective. So at every stage of your life, you're learning new things, and I wouldn't say that that one was more advancing than the other.
0: So it's been a gradual stage, continual learning. Let, let's go back then to your when you were a, a teaching fellow and you worked at NASA Ames at the Singularity University. What is the Singularity University?
1: It's a school that has been founded by pretty famous people like Peter Diamandis, Ray Kurzweil, who are um, living in American cap- capitalism and uh, making a lot of uh, improvements to the world advancing in order to impact the humanity in a positive way. Uh, Singularity University actually does not exist uh, in the form it used to exist uh, anymore. Uh, They changed the business model a little bit. Basically, the idea is to do something really, really good on a big scale.
0: And when did you first start becoming interested in the concept of driverless cars?
1: Maybe in Germany, when I was doing my PhD, I did it in collaboration with Daimler. At the time, it was Daimler Chrysler. It was uh, a very intellectually stimulating thought when when you were thinking that actually the car could drive you and kind of like read your mind as opposed to you doing all these things that you have to repeat every single day.
0: And what aspect of the car in terms of your work were you most interested in?
1: It's coming in stages. So, you know, at the beginning, I I didn't know much about the uh, engine and... uh, how the mechanics works, and what you can actually automate through software. So all those stages, the way the car industry was being transformed, was very interesting. 25 years ago, we used to use a lot of controllers, and uh, software was built to control uh, the controlling units. Nowadays, uh, software is built differently. Nowadays, uh, the the automated driving or half-autonomous driving is built using neural networks. So it's a different computer science paradigm than it used to be. Um, so the transition is always very interesting because all of a sudden you don't have the controllers the way you used to uh, have. You you do your controlling slightly differently. You are using a lot of neural networks in order for the car to drive properly.
0: So take me through then in a very sort of simple way. Uh, a lot of our listeners are students who are interested in in, in, in becoming engineers. What is a driverless car in terms of how does it work?
1: It's actually simpler than you would think. Basically, your car is like a robot. It's basically a robot that is performing a certain task for you. And now this robot has to sense the way humans sense. So if you compare the driverless car to a human, it would be the senses on the car that are perceiving the environment around itself. So, for example, for a human, the sensors are eyes, ears, whereas for the car, the sensors are cameras, radars, lidars, depending on the technology that is in use. So that's the first stage. You sense and you perceive. And then the next stage is you plan how how you're going to go. So, for example, for a human, I have to go from uh, from my living room to the kitchen So in human mind, your brain is wired this way that you know how to perform those tasks. Uh, For a car, you have to teach the car how to do that. So the car has to have a route and has to plan for this route and has to be able to, to, to control how to get there. The third stage is you actually have to act. So you have to perform this action. So as a human, you just get up and you go from your living room to the kitchen. You're using your legs. Whereas the car, has to act with the actuators that it has available in the car. So these actuators are basically getting commands from from your planning, kind of from your brain, and performing certain set of actuation steps in order to start the engine, drive through the route, and stop. Does it make sense? Does it help you?
0: It does. It's a very complex set of stages, isn't it? And obviously you're, you, you need a lot of data, I would have thought, in order to end up with a system that everybody feels confident in
1: that's right and you know in artificial intelligence people say that this is the most complicated system humans have ever designed in a sense it is because of the ai that is being used so the way it works in that sense stage that i told you about when the car has to perceive the environment around it it's actually not about just sensing it's also about collecting the data from your environment in order to learn. But basically the recording from the sensors is teaching your neural networks in the software of the car how to behave and what decisions to make for you. So for example, you drive through a stop sign and your car is seeing a stop sign million times. once the car saw the, the stop sign through the camera when, once the car saw the stop signs million times, it's going to finally learn that the stop sign means that the car has to stop. That's that's basically how you train your neural network. You train it through the images that you are collecting from, from the road. And once you have millions of these images, at some point the car is going to be able to do it by itself. This is why neural networks in the car are typically deep learning neural networks, meaning that you are learning from the images or from the surrounding recording of the surrounding that you take through your sensors. So if
0: someone was going on a specific route multiple times, the car would actually effectively get to know that route and and what the specific things are, are, are going on there and, and, and sort of almost predict when they're coming to a specific place.
1: That is correct. I'm glad you're bringing this up because one way to think about autonomous cars is to think exactly this, you go through just one route and you learn what is going on, on that one simple route, let's say one mile from your workplace to your uh, home. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is you want to scale this effort up and you want to teach your neural networks about everything in the world. So you have to scale this up within your town, then within your state or country depending where you live, than within uh, your continent. You know, the, the the problem becomes even more complex when you want to make it a commercial solution that works for everyone, everywhere. And what would you say
0: are the advantages of having a world with autonomous cars over what we have today?
1: Biggest advantages, you know, from the human perspective, like humanity perspective, is safety and uh, comfort. So basically, you don't have to worry about the effort of driving the moment autonomy is here let's say in about 25 years or so you're just going to roll into your car and it's going to take you wherever you want to go and you can focus on whatever uh, occupies your mind at the moment or whatever entertainment you would like to be entertained with and then you get this this guarantee that it's going to be safe so all of a sudden it does not depend on your on your mental state or on your uh, you know, thoughts or on your driving ability. It's just going to happen as a safe thing that you take for granted. That's actually a very useful advantage for humanity.
0: I remember in the um, mid-1990s making a radio programme for the BBC on robotics and going to MIT in the States and seeing a prototype for a self-driving car and it felt at the time as if we were actually you know within 10 years it could be happening and like so many you know new technologies disruptive technologies it's been far longer than people would have expected why do you think it has taken so long to get to where we are now? And and do you think we're at some sort of tipping point now where we're about to finally get
1: there? Yeah, so there are very factual technological reasons for this. In the 90s, I can see how you you saw a prototype. Actually, the first prototype was in 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 the 70s. The reason it took so long is basically two things happened. One, we advanced our computing capabilities, in particular, parallel computing capabilities, and two, because of this parallel computing, we can do neural networks much more efficiently than we used to do. So you now, all of a sudden, you got deep learning as as a as a, as a result of parallel computing. That's one, and then also we became very much software defined. Uh, so we we learned as a humanity how to build things that depend on software much more so than on the mechanical uh, switch. And this is why now we are able to, to build things in a different way. And for autonomy it means you can leverage deep learning so all you need is a proper set of sensors on your car in order to make it drive autonomously. Now the technology is there. Every startup can build a autonomous car nowadays everybody really it's not that difficult to build a demonstration however it's extremely difficult to to build a commercial product and the reason it is so difficult to build a commercial product is that it's not about just uh, demonstrating how the technology works it's about making it safe and in order to make it safe you have to follow a set of standards safety standards and uh, generally development standards so for this you have to build a lot of engineering into your process how how you build the software and then also verification and validation all of a sudden becomes half of your engineering budget because of basically the reliability that you have to build into your system whenever something bad happens your system has to be able to react and save you from that
0: I mean, I personally, I would love a self-driving car. I've always been intrigued by the concept, I think ever since going to MIT and seeing their version. And also, I just think it makes sense as well, like you say, in terms of safety, and it would probably help with traffic management on the road as well. But a lot of people are very sceptical about it. Is there the same amount of scepticism in California, which, you know, by its nature, you know, it's, it's the, the home of, of a lot of technology companies.
1: Are people there a little bit more open to the concept? I'm also a, a very sceptical person because remember, my background comes from Germany. And in Germany, it's all about the standards and how you do things, engineering process, step by step, not running, but really going through every single step with seriousness. To me, Silicon Valley, it, it was an adjustment of mindset. And it took me a while, uh, to be honest, to accept that you can do things differently and they may as well work. So that's on skepticism. Now, I'm excited about self-driving cars. I'm also excited about driving a car, especially if it is an electric car. It gives a lot of joy, uh, you know, the acceleration and the way you can navigate your car is much more robust than, than the, the motor engine. So uh, if I think about cars, I really think about electric cars uh, being the big, uh, the biggest advantage for humanity and autonomy comes as a, you know, a bonus. I like the autonomy because it can help us in certain situations. For example, if you think about pandemics now that we're experiencing, it would be nice to have autonomy in the delivery system. So the car would basically pick up your groceries, come to you, and and bring them to you. You don't have to touch anything. You don't have to talk to anybody. So you're safe. But there is a lot of uh, you know expansion from from this autonomy thinking. I think that building something like electric supersonic flights is what excites me even more. <laughs> and the reason it excites me is because it's environmentally uh, very friendly, but it's also very very fast so imagine if I'm a person who who is really very much related to three countries in the world and if you ask me what is my home country it depends uh on on my mindset what I would answer to you so my 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 objective answer is really it's Poland Germany and the US so I want to travel between those countries very very fast because I have loved ones in every of those countries and I want to see them. I want to see them uh, very frequently, if possible. So if you have supersonic flight, you get there very, very fast. I'm skeptical, but I'm also a believer. I'm also an optimist. I think human mind is conditioned to build things.
0: Yes. It just takes a bit longer for human minds sometimes to accept certain technologies because just people start with a bit of reluctance, I suppose. And yet people are now starting to use the automatic parking in function in certain cars. And that's just like one small step, isn't it?
1: That is correct. And, you know, human mind is also, you know, continues to excite me how quickly humans change. You can see it, especially in California, uh, but in other countries too, when people start driving a Tesla, all this skepticism, all of a sudden it disappears because all of a sudden it's actually so joyful not to have to drive on your highway. (laughs) People learn this very quickly that when it feels safe, it actually is going to be safe. And sometimes people learn too quickly. So sometimes people uh, give too much trust in the technology. It's very important to educate people what you can, what you cannot do with the current state of the technology. You know, I was thinking the other day about, about humanity, how, how we use cloud computing nowadays. Imagine that the uh, Internet would be down for a couple of days. All of a sudden, there is so many things that you cannot do anymore. all of your financial obligations, uh, probably taxes, but also you know entertainment accounts for gamers gaming, uh, for uh, TV watchers, all the TV, it's all in the cloud. You don't exist without the cloud anymore today. Social network, it's in the cloud. So um, what I'm saying is that cloud computing is accelerating in dominating our life without us really being aware of that. And so if you think about pandemic now, you could think that we would want to build a, something like a computational defense system that is going to defend us uh, from, you know, the invisible enemy, but at the same time, you also want to build a computational system that is going to defend us from the cloud computing dependency that we developed as humans
0: great thought and very relevant as well I think I mean it's that sort of thinking that has been sci-fi thinking for quite a long time as well in terms of dependence on one technology can be a dangerous thing you mentioned you know some interesting ideas there during the pandemic has Nvidia been doing any work um, with Covid-19 in terms of applying their technology
1: oh yeah absolutely Nvidia is a fantastic company you know I've seen a lot, and I've been to many companies, as you said, and NVIDIA is extraordinary for two reasons. One, it goes very, very fast. It only engages in things that are very difficult to achieve, and then it executes very fast. But two, NVIDIA cares. NVIDIA actually builds things that are relevant for humanity. And so for COVID, the way NVIDIA approaches it is, we obviously help to find vaccines and, uh, and testing, but all, we also think, you know, in a broader scale. So we are donating a lot of compute to, to organizations that care about mitigation and also about planning and basically researching what else uh, could we be doing better as a humanity in terms of how we protect ourselves from events like this. So NVIDIA is active on 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 the front of all these three domains, researching the biology or the medicine around it, then mitigating and then also planning for the future.
0: And throughout your career, have you had a mentor or somebody that you've aspired to emulate a- along the way? Has there been one overall influence or maybe a family member or, or, or several or something else?
1: I have this friend in, in Poland uh, from my childhood, And he always says that everybody you meet in your life is there to give you a lesson if you want to accept that. So um, I think everybody whom I met uh, played a significant role. And of course, there are, you know, more famous mentors and less famous people who you treat as mentors. So I would say a lot of people influenced the way I think. If I think about, you know, whom I met in my life, everybody contributed something. You've worked at the White House. What did you actually do there? So at the White House, it was a Smart America initiative, and uh, it was it was like um, like a DARPA challenge, but organized by the White House. And so DARPA uh, the, the...
0: Defence and Research Agency. Correct.
1: So for Smart America challenge, the the main priority was show us the glimpse of the future and how is it going to positively impact the future of humanity. And what we built was a smart emergency response system which is kind of handy in those times today. Uh, But we we built it for the earthquake scenario. So we we basically combined multiple uh, various technologies in one big system that could help us in case of uh, an earthquake scenario or any emergency scenario. And the way we did it was we combined humanoids and robots and drones that would be used as uh, devices that help Everybody who who is a victim of an earthquake, and go there based on the command and control center control. Uh, so basically, we would collect information from the field from people who are and endangered, then, and then the command and control center would send and dispatch all these devices to people with either supplies or with some kind of devices to to get people out of the buildings or help them get out of the buildings provide food, provide medicine, and even provide other humans who are doctors and so on. And we actually won that entire challenge. We were nine organizations uh, across the globe. Congratulations. Winning the challenge in the White House, it, it's a nice, you know, five minutes and you get the cover in, in all the articles and publicity. And then I tried to commercialize the solution and it turns out nobody really wanted to invest in a humanitarian action. We are living in the capitalistic world. So humanitarian cause is not necessarily something that is going to bring you capital or you know, benefit in terms of finances. And so the, the project, unfortunately, had to stop and is still in my mind, but it's on hold.
0: It sounds like the word that keeps coming up is humanity and helping people. This seems to be a driving force in terms of what you want to do.
1: Yeah, I would not say helping, I would rather say advancing or just using whatever we are building in the capitalistic world, using it in such a way that it's gonna advance people. You know, I had the conversation with with my other friend the other day and he said, you know what, I think the world 50 years ago was just fine without all this technology that you're building. And he's not in technology, it's completely different industry. And I gave him the thought and I, you know, in a sense, From one perspective, he's right. (laughs) So it's true that we are advancing, but is it bringing more happiness to humanity? I mean, you know, you you have to think about various factors, and of course happiness is different for for everybody, but I'm not sure. So it would be good to, you know, to have a lot of people who are thinking how to advance humanity and how to advance um, um, society so that we are actually making something good to each other and to ourselves as opposed to just advancing without the bigger purpose.
0: So what do you think a driverless future will look like? Will it be the way it's depicted in science fiction or will it be a, a, a lot more down to earth than that?
1: <laughs> I don't know what science fiction you're referring to. I actually don't watch TV that much. I only recently <laughs> started watching a little bit more. You're too busy getting degrees. But, <laughs> but maybe I'm just too busy doing other
0: things yeah but do you think there'll be a point where people still want to a bit like the fact that say electric hybrid cars are, are, are very popular will that sort of hybrid driverless car do you think might be the one where people can still retain control if they want to or switch over or or what have you
1: so it depends on the time horizon that we are talking about i think in the next 25 years there will be a lot of cars that you can drive yourself still. And it depends on the geography as well. But at some point, we're probably going to migrate to this model that it's just like a transportation on demand and it just takes you everywhere, wherever you want. But it's going to take us some time. I mean, if you look at the IT systems, the way we build IT systems, some of them are very robust and reliable and some others are not. And so with, uh, with the... Driverless technology is going to be very similar that we're going to slowly adapt depending on the geography, governments and you know, humans who are using it. It's going to take some time.
0: And what would you say if you were to encourage people to study engineering, maybe to follow your path into automation and driverless technology and AI and deep learning? What would be your pitch? Why would you say it's such a good career to follow? What is it about what you do that you enjoy?
1: I would tell people to do whatever they love, whatever they enjoy, whatever they wake up with passion and feel like, yeah, I want to do it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be engineering. It could be anything. I think in the future, it's going to be much more artificial intelligence and uh, data science in combined with engineering. If I were to encourage someone, I I would just think what motivates you. Just uh, sit with yourself and uh, be honest with yourself. What you really like doing. I know about myself that I just like building stuff, but I like building stuff at scale. You know, I don't want to just sit down and build a little robot at my home. I actually didn't do it when I was a child. <laughs> <laughs> so, I just want to, you know, it's like it, it's like when I think. What is my future? I would love to have very safe supersonic flights. I would just, I I just so much enjoy this idea. (laughs) So if I could build that, I would do that.
0: And how do you relax? I suspect the fact that you're a licensed Zumba teacher has something to do with your choice of relaxation.
1: That's true. Zumba is a uh, a form of dance. I think dancing is uh, occupying a lot of my free time. So I do relax through dancing. I do relax through sport. What style
0: of dancing and sport?
1: I used to do ballroom dancing when I was at MIT. I really liked the technique of dance. And then I learned about Zumba after that. My friend from Poland actually took me to a Zumba camp one day and I fell in love with that because it makes you independent. You can you can do Zumba anytime, anywhere. And it combines Cuban and Brazilian type of dance with more modern music. You can express yourself, uh, you can be yourself and you you can, you know, Mm -hmm. get some activity out of that. What I like about Zumba the most is that it's a group sport, but at the same time you can stay independent. So you're not dependent, you, you don't need a dance partner, but you do it within a group. And I strongly believe that humans don't mean that much when they are just individuals. I actually think that people mean much more When they aggregate in a group. So when you have 20 mostly women dancing Zumba, it's very empowering to do it together. It's very empowering to see other people enjoying it and having fun together. It's a big thing.
0: And sport, what sort of sports do
1: you do? Biking, skiing.
0: Yeah, you do it all. It's fantastic to speak to somebody who's got such a... You know, you obviously love what you do. Mind you, I don't think I've not spoken to anybody yet who doesn't really enjoy what they do and has also got that lovely, sporty, dancy side of it too. And living in California, I mean, what's not to like?
1: <laughs> it depends on your priorities and what you like in life. I think every human has something about themselves that is very unique and you can explore it everybody has something to contribute and everybody has something very very interesting about their life it's just a matter of uh, how deep we want to go
0: (laughs) well your life is absolutely incredibly and interesting justina zander thank you very much for joining me on the queen elizabeth prize for engineering create the future podcast
1: my pleasure thank you very much Sue.